Hello and welcome once again to episode 49 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So before we get into our main topic, it's time for our indie app spotlight. Today we are checking out Smart Filter by Jake Grant, an iPhone spam filter for SMS text messages. Spam filter uses machine learning to check for spam messages and texts before they disturb you. You can customize its filters to always block or allow certain words, filter for links, or even security codes. And when spam does leak through, you can contribute it to the algorithm so it'll catch it next time. Spam filter is completely free uh, and supported completely by tips. So please be sure to download it today to support Jake and don't forget to tip. And if you are an indie developer, we want to hear from you. So please be sure to reach out to us at Twitter at CodeCompletion via DM so we can spotlight your app in the future as well. So for our main topic today, we want to discuss all the new features that just made their way into into Swift 5.5. Do you have any particular favorites or should we just go down the list? Yeah, no, we can just go down the list. Um, Paul, Paul Hudson has made... Or you, you probably already know it, but you all uh, listening already know it, but it's what's new in Swift and it's awesome. I mean, he does everything, but he's got this um, list of, you know, you can say, I'm using Swift, whatever. What are the differences between that and Swift, in this case, 5.5? So we're just going from 5.4 to 5.5, but there are some great changes. So let's yes, yeah, so that's it. That's what's new in Swift.com, if you don't know. Um, And as Spencer mentioned, great, great resource, especially if you haven't been keeping super up to date with the Xcode versions, especially like when uh, Xcode 15.1 or .2 rolls around, there's like a new version of Swift that also comes out. Um, And that's a great resource to just like catch up and (laughs) get an idea for what just got included that you might not be aware of. Yeah. And it's cool because it includes like the Swift evolution number and links to the GitHub, um, uh, what would you call that, like proposal uh, mm-hmm. for whatever this changes. So really cool. Yeah, so you can read up on the whole process, which yeah. um, I try to keep up with like every time. Like there are certain people you can follow on Twitter uh, that will just like post when new proposals um, or even pitches like get get uh, brought up. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about a few of them probably um, as we go through all this. Um, but it's it's really a fascinating process to kind of watch the language evolve publicly um, and not not like hidden away in like mailing lists or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh, the first one we have on our little list that I th- threw together um, is that read-only properties can now throw. So if you've ever had a computed property um, and you've wanted to mark it as throwing. Um, that is now possible, which is super convenient because they are essentially just little functions, but semantically they read differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that uh, now that async await, which we'll get to at the bottom of our list, um, since it's a big one, but now now since that landed and you, they essentially needed the ability to mark properties as um, as async, uh, that is a new addition that they can now throw as well, um, which is super convenient and brings a little parity to. Uh, the language and how it can be used, um, especially since they are essentially the same things, um, especially once it does get compiled down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have you, uh, have I, you ever run into that before where you wanted to mark one as throws? Not personally, no. 
So I, I, one thing that I do love though, just kind of on that topic is a lot of these things, um, especially like async await, which again, we'll get to, I haven't even really experimented with, but one of the cool things about this, this what's new in swift.com is it will give code examples of like, this is how we used to do it. And then this is kind of what it will be or now what it is in Swift 5.5. So there's there's context there. It's not just like listing out what it is, but it's actually saying, here's how it works here, you know, visualize the code and see what it's going to be. So that's cool. Um, but no, I haven't personally needed that. Um, it, it is a nice change though. <laughs> Definitely. So what's the next one? Yeah, so then we've got the, uh, the pragma if, for post member, uh, sorry, postfix member expressions. So the example that Paul Hudson gives is a great one, I think, in Swift UI, where you can say um, you've just got like a text view that with like the, the string welcome, and then you can do uh, pragma if uh, OS is iOS, then you can do have a modifier for font that's maybe a large title. Otherwise, it could be like a headline font. Um, and what it will let you do is also nest those as well. So you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, and he, he talks a little bit about, you know, maybe not wanting to change kind of that whole view hierarchy between if and else and everything. But you could kind of get it. I think for me, it looks like SwiftUI is a huge thing with this is just um, you can kind of optionally add these modifiers depending on whatever, uh, for example, the OS, which, you know, if we're trying to be uh, cross-platform using, you know, um, Catalyst or, or just um, allowing the, Mac, or the iPad apps to run on Mac, that's that's great. That would be something that can be useful to make it feel a little bit more, um, I suppose, natural. Um, just make things look a little bit better, perhaps, uh, on different mm -hmm. platforms. I and don't know if you could do it with any other, well, what he does, sorry to interject, he does it with, um, you know, checking if the, the OS is iOS or, you know, you can have uh, like a debug flag, for example, to make something, some super vibrant color so you can, you know, see where views are or whatever. I don't know um, if you have any other examples of, of things that you could check for that might be useful. Uh, so now, like you wouldn't have been able to do this before, but now what you can do is combine this with uh, the compiler check and the Swift version as well. Um, so that way you can mm. include code that would otherwise work fine in um, Xcode uh, in Xcode and the newest version of Xcode, but it wouldn't be compilable on older versions of Xcode. Um, so this sense. is combined with like add available and stuff like that. Um, a great way of making that uh, possible, but my favorite like use of this is specifically for uh, cross-platform code, especially since SwiftUI has such a large uh, API surface that is shared between platforms. Every now and then there are little things. Oh, the keyboard type um, not available on macOS because there's no virtual keyboard ever on screen. Right. Um, and therefore it's just not declared in macOS, uh, which is frustrating, especially when you just want to like mark it as like an email um, and otherwise, the rest of the view is unchanged between platforms. Um, that is something that will now uh, be expressible using this new um, uh, pound uh, pound signed if uh, directive, because you can just like insert these modifiers um, a little by little, uh, depending on the platform that you're using, and that's going to be uh, great. Up until now, you've had to kind of write your own modifier, um, for instance, on uh, one on one project. Uh, 
my coworker and I, we made um, um, something called modify and it just takes a closure and it passes the view that it's modifying. So it's like a super uh, bare bones way of just getting the view that you need to make changes to. And then in there, you could then do the um, pound if uh, directive. Um, but since you no longer need to do that kind of screwy code, that really added a lot of indents every single time we wanted to do it. Uh, this is going to be a lot nicer um, for the code, um, I think. Awesome. So I, I think you kind of already like implied this, but in your example of um, changing the keyboard type, that would just not compile if you were running it on macOS. Is that correct? Yes, and that's super frustrating. Gotcha. Like, yeah. It's almost better just to have no ops than to have things that don't compile. Um, yeah. I get that it's for all the safety and stuff with Swift. Uh, if this were Objective-C land, all these things would probably be declared and they'd all be no ops. Yeah. Uh, just because that's it's it makes for faster uh, coding uh, in that uh, experience, but it makes for like buggy code, especially when you expect something to work and it doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe in Swift 6 we'll get a uh, loose loose mode to the language where it doesn't have as many stringent checks. Um, and it allows you to write quick and dirty code uh, and then make it correct after the fact. Um, I think that would be a great addition to the language um, like as a whole. I guess a lot of languages actually have this. They have a strict mode, right? Where the strict mode is essentially what Swift is all the time. <laughs> right. um, and I guess this would be the loosey-goosey mode uh, where things are just a little... A little more loose um so feel free to steal this idea and take it to the swift evolution proposals and uh, make a pitch for it uh, because i think that would be great for the language especially for people learning the language for it to be mm. a little more um uh a, a little more forgiving yeah forgiving um especially at and maybe like push things towards the runtime level uh layer if they are like actually problems um but that would help in the long run for Swift as an education tool and for Swift as like a, a quick scripting tool. Uh, currently, mm -hmm. you really have to have Xcode follow along and correct you as you go uh, to yeah. write any Swift at all. Um, and that is a bit of a shame, I think. So it would be like we're pulling a reverse TypeScript then, basically. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Like, <laughs> keep most of it, but like every now and then, whenever like Swift gets in the way, I guess... Uh, it yeah. can go ahead and just be a little more loose. It's just to have more no-ops, have more things that are just more implicit um, or have implicit behavior, um, looser like rules when checking equality and all that. I think yeah. that would that would go a long way. Anything that the type system can catch for you and tell you to fix, it should just go ahead and do, basically. Sure. So uh, next on our list uh, is on the topic of like frustrations with Swift. Uh, automatic bridging between CG Float and Double. So for those of you that don't know, uh, CG Float was added back in the olden days uh, between the transition uh, between 32-bit and 64-bit platforms. Uh, and CG Float would be a floating type, a 32-bit floating point type on 32-bit platforms and a 64-bit floating point type on 64-bit um, on platforms, a double basically. Um, now, Swift kind of has this carryover for both Int and CG Float as well. Um, and 
for CG Float specifically, it's a, a big pain, I would say, uh, to go ahead and use this all over, especially since Apple's platforms kind of rely on CG Float. But anytime you do math by default, it will make a double. Yeah. Um, so what they've added is very specific bridging between only these two types so there's no other like automatic casts um within the language but these two types are the exception and basically if you declare anything as or have anything that is a double the type system will work backwards to see does this end up a cg float and if it does and it's not being used as a double anywhere else it will just make it a cg float from that point forward um so you don't actually get any type conversions ever um, for that scenario, or um, if uh, it does get used as a double elsewhere, it will kind of do the transition between a double to a CG float at the last possible moment. Um, and in most cases, this will be a no-op since it's going from a double, which is what a CG float is, to a double. Uh, but in some very uh, very specific situations, specifically watchOS uh, and um, watch, where some types are still 32-bit, um, I think there are 64-bit in general, but 32-bit pointers. I think that was like the specific instruction set, which is weird. Uh, but the older watches are still 32-bit. So yeah. uh, this this kind of is only useful in that one circumstance. And probably once those watches stop being supported, CG Float will just be a double anyways. Um, so uh, I don't know if this needed to kind of make it into language before they just turned CG Float into a double, probably in the next year or so. Uh, but it is definitely, definitely a welcome addition. Yeah, I, out of all of these, it's probably the the least really impactful for most of us. But I am probably the most stoked about it because uh, I can't remember if it was when I was doing a lot of Swift UI work or what, but just having to go back and forth between double and CG Float is such a pain. Having to uh, you know, convert them manually. So this kind of implicit um, interchangeability of the two types is so nice. And I, I remember looking this up and seeing um, if it was in in a proposal already, and it, it of course was. So I didn't quite know when it was going to be a part of. Um, it, it was going to actually get accepted and, and kind of into the language and everything. But I'm very excited about this just for. Those, you know, a few instances where you're dealing with both of those types and maybe it's just <laughs> the code that I was writing was bad that I was dealing with both types, but it'll be nice that uh, you can kind of go back and forth that, uh, between them um, just from like a developer, like in the moment coding standpoint, it'll be nice to get that automatic um, interchangeability. Yeah, I have a feeling no one's going to notice when that ha- when this happens. It's yeah. just going to happen and everyone's going to quickly forget that they ever needed to go ahead and do the trans the transfer before kind of like with uh the transition to arc um for memory management it's like you quickly forget when you needed to put uh retain and release all over the place because the, the system is taking care of it for you at this point um right. and then you also s- slowly start to forget the other rules where you need to call super and deallocate uh and stuff like that and that has come to bite me uh, specifically, uh, specifically while teaching lessons on manual reference counting, I'm like, why is none of this working? And that's because I forgot to call super and deallocate, uh, because I got so used to not calling super because that was now against the rules. Uh, so yeah, uh, lots of fun stuff when it comes to automatic conversions. Do you think we're going to get more automatic conversions between types? Yeah. 
I don't know. Okay, so like, what would be some examples of that? Like, mm, string double, for instance. Right. Okay. I was gonna say string and a string basically already do that. Into double would be cool. Yeah, it, like a lot of that with doing math between different um, number types would be really nice. Mm-hmm. Or maybe to yeah. specify within the language, like, hey, you can just go ahead and loosely convert between these two types freely, um, mm-hmm. like between strings and enums, for instance. That might be a a common case. Where yeah. instead of specifying the enum, you can specify it as a string, and it'll just dynamically get converted. Um, I guess this is more for the loosey goosey version of the language, <laughs> right? Uh, that it yeah. will just accept more of these uh, transgre- transgressions in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's it, like I said, it's probably this double to CG float thing. It's probably not anything that's really going to impact anyone other than the developer themselves, but anything to kind of make the language uh more uh how would i put it like just have less friction to develop and just you know you getting out of the flow state because you're like oh crap how do i you know what's the best way to do this um i think that's cool as long as it's you know there's no huge uh, kind of impact performance wise or whatever but i'd assume that it you know they're doing it like you said in a really cool way where sometimes it's just a no-op or sometimes it's at the very last second that they have to actually do the conversion and everything is, you know, totally good. Mm-hmm. So, um, so next up we've got codable synthesis for enums and, uh, sorry, with associated values. So that's pretty cool that it can just automatically uh, synthesize or write the... Um, init from decoder and or i was encode with encoder and init from decoder um for codable um implementations so that's let's see yeah, yeah that's so automatic it, right yeah so yeah up until now if you had an enum that has like a swift a switch oh my gosh a string as a backing type <laughs> um if you had an enum with a string as a backing type or an int as a backing type that would get codable um, automatically, anything with raw right. representable that is codable, mm-hmm. basically, um, would automatically convert. But if you had associated types, that would just throw its hands up in the air because it's like, what do you want me to do about this? Um, yeah. So it's nice that this is now automatic. Um, it might not be automatic in the way that your API needs it to be. Uh, mm-hmm. So you might still need to do custom codable. Um, but if you are kind of just building out an API from scratch, uh, this is a welcome addition. Basically, it turns um the enum type into a dictionary and then the dictionary has the associated type in there um keyed according to whatever the key um the um, parameter name is in your associated type so you can actually have parameter names for associated types and you can have multiple associated types so all that goes into a dictionary uh basically um so and it's a dictionary that's keyed by the enum name um i believe the case. Uh, so, yeah, the case. Exactly. Right. Um, um, so, yeah, welcome addition. Yeah, no, I think that's cool. Like you said, it's not going to be useful in every case, but just I, like what came to mind was, as another example, that is structs generating memberwise initializers automatically. Like sometimes that's not what you want, but sometimes it is, and it's sweet that you get it for free. So that's mm-hmm. that's great. And it's sweet when you forget about it when you're writing it within like a package, <laughs> and you're like, why is this not coming out? Come on, Xcode. You quit Xcode, you restart your computer, you 
<laughs> gently tap the side of the computer to uh, persuade it, um, and it still never comes up. And then you finally remember, oh, I need to mark it as public. Um, <laughs> actually, it seems like Xcode 13 does tell you, hey, this is not public. Uh, you should mark it as public, um, oh, which is a super neat addition. Uh, now, again, anything that the compiler can guess, like, hey, this is the obvious next step, it should do automatically in that loosey-goosey mode. Um, loosey-goosey mode for everything. Uh, yep. <laughs> that's the outcome of this episode. Um, and this is a perfect lead into the next one. And I guess the the codable synthesis stuff is probably more useful for Swift on the server, um, especially since you get full control over the conversions there. And on the topic of Swift on the server, uh, there is now faster JSON serialization uh, for Swift on the server. I guess they got a brand new uh, implementation of the serializer that is used internally, uh, which is neat. Awesome. That's cool. Like as a part of Neo or? No, it's it... just a part of the standard library. I've just Oh, cool. That's awesome. Um, another cool one I think is really awesome is you can now use the lazy keyword uh, in local context. So for example, in a function or something. So you could, you know, I'm not going to say initialize because it's really not, but you could create a bunch of variables um, that, you know, you can mark them as lazy and within the function itself, if they're never used, they're just never initialized and you're never um, needing to, you know, do anything with them, which is pretty cool. Um, so you can kind of selectively um, initialize things as they're needed and, you know, perhaps save a little um, uh, processing memory, all that. So I think that's really cool. I'd never even thought of that, but it makes sense if you've got, you know, quite a bit of branching logic that that might be really nice to not have to. You can maybe, you know, now instead... Um, put all the variables at the top of the function as opposed to kind of nesting them within the, you know, different, um, different conditions or whatever, and kind of have everything front and center at the top and then have all of the conditional logic, you know, down below kind of separate. So I think that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. I, I, I guess this, is it possible to use property wrappers in local context? I think so. Right. Hmm. I like for variables. Yeah, I think so. yeah. I so, think so. Yeah. The reason why I bring it up is because in the pitch for property wrappers, there was like, "Hey, lazy as a as a like mm -hmm. system feature could go yeah. ahead and be implemented this way, um, and that would be like one way of going about like implementing your own lazy." Uh, and I guess maybe I well I guess we can find out exactly if you wanted to, uh, but. Perhaps lazy is now implemented as like a property wrapper internally, um, and now because of that, it can just be used as a keyword um, in any of those contexts. Um, now that might completely be false in terms of implementation, uh, but uh, it's nice to see again more homogeneity in the features of the language, um, especially where things can be used. I I mm -hmm. think the biggest like uh, obvious part where that kind of fell apart was with when swift ui came out and you had um what are those now called they're not function builders they're result builders uh yes it needed like a completely different syntax uh mm -hmm. where you can no longer use if statements you can no longer declare variables and yeah. everything just like this is a weird block of code that is not there's no commas in between lines or anything it's it, it, yeah mm -hmm. yeah so when that first came out and you couldn't do all those things, uh, it felt like really sub 
standard and like nothing that you came to uh, be used to with Swift could be used yeah. in that context. And then little by little, they added all the features back in. Um, so this kind of feels uh, the same where they're kind of bringing features that can be used elsewhere. Like one of my favorites is to declare functions within functions. Uh, mm -hmm. It's essentially closure at that point, but it's super convenient for handling like small subtasks and making the code really clear and easy to read. And obvious that this little function is really private to that bigger mm -hmm. outer function, and it's never going to be used in any other context. Continuing with that whole this whole thing of extending um, functionality to just more parts of the language, we've got uh, property wrappers can be added to function and closure parameters as well. So another place where we get property wrappers uh, too. Yeah, and property wrappers, if you don't like know exactly what they are, it's just a struct. Um, and a struct is just like a box in terms of memory. Like whatever you put in it, it just encapsulates it and then throws... Uh, some nice syntactic sugar on top of there where you can have methods and uh, automatic triggers that happen whenever you change or retrieve values from it. Um, yeah. So uh, I think it's really nice that this kind of getting uh, placed everywhere. You can currently do them on functions, right? You can do them on properties, um, mm -hmm. which is why they're called property wrappers. Um, I don't know if you can do them on types yet. Like, I don't think that's a thing. So maybe that's next on the list of like where to put these boxing uh, APIs where you can box a type and then it would be boxed in a different way, I guess. I guess that's how we uh, abstract uh, classes and structs, right? A class is just like a pointer. So maybe mm -hmm. that's what a class ends up being. It's just a, a, a class wrap, uh, type wrapper on a struct that makes it a reference type. Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah. I guess optionals they are essentially that, right? Um, they've got a cool example, uh, that I thought was just kind of a good, you know, reason of having, uh, property wrappers in these, these parameters to, to a function. So, um, Paul just wrote like a quick, uh, struct called clamped. So if you, you know, pass in some integer or something and you want to make sure it's within a, sp a specific range, uh, he just does a simple, call to, uh, the min value calls min then max, and then passes in the, the value and make sure it's between a lower and upper bound, just of a range. And, you know, if it's zero to 100, but they pass in 200, then it would clamp it down to 100 to, you know, make it, um, just fit with whatever the, the function itself is doing, um, that this property wrapped, um, uh, sorry, parameter is is getting passed into. So I think that's that's cool. I I think it would be really nice if we can get, uh, hopefully I guess soon, uh, more uses of all these property wrappers and stuff like that within the standard library or the foundation library. Mm -hmm. Because things like clamp, for instance, are really useful in many yeah. different scenarios. But like you either right now have to write it yourself, um, or you have to hope that SwiftUI comes with. Uh, a version of it, for instance, if it's useful in SwiftUI. Like, SwiftUI has a bunch of property wrappers, but they're all closed source. So yeah. uh, they are only useful in the context where SwiftUI is available. Um, so it'd be really nice if more and more of these convenience methods and functions and types uh, make their way over to Foundation where they can accelerate development for anything that uses Swift. Um, I think that would be uh, a nice addition to the language. I, I wouldn't be surprised if kind of, you know, in the future, now that these um, property wrappers are existing on 
not just properties, but now, you know, parameters and everything. Um, as it kind of grows within uh, the language, we see some proposals for some of these things, like you're saying, just to be added. Um, yeah. Um, which brings us to the next thing that just got added to the language, which is uh, static members on uh, protocols. So basically what this allows is for protocols to have a static uh, member associated with it. And that is basically like a uh, class property or a type property um, on the protocol itself, which means that anywhere you require like an object of type that protocol, you can go ahead and now type dot and it will autocomplete with any type, um, any types that have been extended on the protocol itself. Uh, which is super convenient for, once again, SwiftUI, uh, <laughs> the driver of most of these features. Um, and uh, like I found this out accidentally while I was using Xcode 13 during the beta period. I was like, oh, I need to like add a list style. So I'm like, okay, dot list style, open parentheses, dot. And then I had uh, the options. I was like, cool, I'm going to go ahead and use this. And then <laughs> that broke all of the CI uh, because mm. all of that was still based on Xcode 14. I'm like, why is this broken? I'm, I'm using the style that is available since like iOS 13. Like, <laughs> this is n nothing new. Apparently, it's because of this feature in Swift 5.5 that enables it. So the compiler actually needs to be updated, it, even if it will like run on older versions. Um, so... Uh, this is uh, one of those things that, like, um, uh, I think marking, uh, like, bringing bindings through the for each um, view uh, in SwiftUI uh, is something that back deploys, which is super, super nice, um, which is not, like, we can't say that about everything uh, mm -hmm. that gets added every year. Uh, so anytime there is something that does back deploy, it basically means that uh, your code gets compiled to work with the new way rather than relying on anything that Apple ships. So uh, that is super neat. Yeah, I really like this. Just another thing that felt a little bit off about SwiftUI having to initialize the style every time. So again, just another kind of le making less friction. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything else to add. I just think it's a great addition. Um, yeah, a lot of these are like that, right? If they're so like minor, you're never going to think about it again. But the moment it gets taken away, you're going to be like, what What happened? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so also new is uh, something called package collections. So these are bundles of other Swift package manager packages um, that all come from one source. So for instance, Apple has a package collection. It was the first one. Um, that lists out all of the packages that Apple has. Um, and it's a great way of uh, not, it's not really a language feature per se, but it's part of the ecosystem. And it enables Xcode, for instance, and the tooling to go ahead and suggest more packages um, by the authors that you trust, um, which is a great way of kind of... Uh, getting more dependencies from trustworthy sources rather than uh, just from the internet, uh, mm -hmm. which has never, never been a good idea. Um, so yeah, a welcome addition. Cool. So this is, this is purely just for kind of finding more packages. It's not like you saying, Hey, I'm going to import this one package and it's actually going to import, you know, 10 packages or something. Yeah, it's, it's basically Xcode will 
uh, pre-suggest like, hey, here are packages from the Apple collection that you've subscribed to. to. So I think the Swift Package Index, which is an open source... I don't know if it's open source. It's a it's a community run, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, website that basically lists out every Swift package uh, that it knows about. Um, I think they are going and also making package collections for individual authors. So if you as an author, gotcha. um, basically your GitHub account ID, uh, whether it's an organization or a personal, uh, will go ahead and automatically get a package collection for that. So if you have many... Uh, packages that you've published you automatically get this for free which is neat um and everyone can go ahead and check out all of them after they find out about one of them that's really cool so this leads into uh the big uh the big updates uh for swift 5.5 and these are actually leading up to more changes that are coming in swift 6 uh or Swift 5.6 as well i guess um i guess uh, i don't know if we're jumping directly into swift 6 after this one um i but there's there's a lot on the the roadmap for that big update to the language um and the first of those is async await uh so spencer what is async await in a nutshell oh yeah well it's it's basically just a new form a new api for concurrency um i think in general is probably like basically a replacement for maybe not all but a lot of Grand Central dispatches kind of asynchronous code. Yeah, if so I understand it right. <laughs> yeah, so async await basically concentrates on just the closures. Uh, so it allows you to have continuation points. I think that's what they're called. Um, anytime you have a closure, so uh, this linearizes your code such, such that it now happens uh, in the order of execution. Um, is that correct? No. And yeah. Uh, so instead of having closures where code that will happen later as a result of something you just started, um, and then it kind of, the next line of code that you have underneath that closure is something that happens before the code that occurred before it. Um, so instead of having that tangled mess of code, you now have a very linear, uh, non-indented um, sequence of events that will happen one after the other, just not immediately after each other. So anytime you have a closure, instead of indenting that closure, it now, uh, you'll mark that function with a wait, meaning you're going to wait for it to finish. Uh, and that closure will just be code that happens immediately afterwards. Um, and the parameters for that closure will just be, uh, variables that will be returned from that function directly. Uh, this gets a, gets rid of a lot of messy APIs where like, URL session, for instance, if you have a data task, you get a URL, a response, and an error. Is there ever a situation where you get a response and an error at one point? You don't know. The API makes no guarantees. Um, You have to read the documentation and hope they didn't mess it up on the implementation side um, because it's possible to get any combination of things once you make everything optional, right? Um, So this basically cleans up a lot of those um, APIs and makes the code in general, a lot easier to read. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. I haven't uh, like tried this out myself um, in the Xcode betas or anything. However, I think this is going to be one um, huge change that, you know, just like Swift, just like Swift UI, we're going to 
sort of, I'm sure it's going to become the norm here. Um, something that is exciting for me, I think, is also that this is, as far as I can tell, going to be implemented fairly soon as well in uh, surface sites with like in vapor. Uh, which I think there it will also clean up a bunch of things because uh, in vapor you are very uh, just by way of using uh, event loop futures you end up kind of nesting closures over and over again and if you've got something complex and you haven't broken it up into other functions it can get very very indented very quickly so kind of making everything a bit more linear uh, doing the same thing but in kind of a more readable way uh, is going to be really exciting. And I don't know if this is a part of... Uh, I might be getting ahead of myself, but one cool thing is there, uh, as a part of this, they, as a part of, like, there's like four, well, four or five kind of sections in here, but I think there are more proposals than that. Uh, they're making it sort of backwards compatible with Grand Central Dispatch's, um, you know, Dispatch Async. Uh, so you being able to kind of adopt these, uh, adopt async away at your leisure, you don't have to kind of roll all of the dis uh, Grand Central Dispatch code over to async away at once. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, nice to kind of not, you know, everyone isn't freaking out and being like, oh, crap, we have to overhaul the code base. It's kind of, you know, do it at your own leisure. And I don't yeah. think Grand Central Dispatch is like um, dispatch queues are, um, they're not deprecated or anything so at yeah. this point it's it's definitely a different library so gcd is a separate library from swift um and it actually does get need to be compiled uh separately i believe it's required by foundation but it's not part of the swift standard library um like set of features when you compile swift from scratch um so that that is completely separate which is nice um, and as you said, like async await, uh, comes with a bunch of helper methods to kind of bridge that gap between, uh, foundation, uh, grand central dispatch and the new Swift concurrency stuff, uh, that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but since you brought up vapor, um, and like Swift Neo, for instance, it takes a real skill, uh, to be able to manage those, um, those callbacks properly um, and to have them be linear and not uh, like a cascading pyramid of yeah. no uh, <laughs> of code. Um, and it's, it's actually pretty hard once you get a few levels deep uh, to make sure that you have all the data that you need. It's like, Oh, mm -hmm. the variable I needed was like use three closures ago. It's not yeah. like you can just use it. You need to remember to pass it down the chain. Um, and, async await gets rid of all of that complexity instantly because you just declare a variable um, and you don't need that variable yet. That's fine. It can just hang out where it is uh, and you can take your time to get to the point where you want to actually go ahead and use it. It will mm. be there for you. Like the compiler will take care of setting up the stack and everything um, for that. So this is like a super welcome addition, uh, especially for all that. I believe async await is merged into neo um i may be wrong there but i believe it is uh and um vapor does have a branch with it like enabled uh yep. so you can go ahead and play around with that there they're still um bringing changes in to make sure that the api surface is like nice to use um for vapor so uh if you do go ahead and start using it and like contribute back and give your opinion so that way 
um, others can know how to use it because so far everyone is kind of settled into let's write crazy <laughs> completion handler <laughs> yeah. uh, like uh, maps um, that go from one to the other and they gotten good mm-hmm. at that so there's no reason to kind of switch and start using the async await stuff so uh, if you do want to go ahead and play around with it do go ahead and give your feedback I'm sure it will be much appreciated yeah for sure um, so this leads into a slightly more complex use of async await, and that is async sequences. Uh, so async sequences are a way of uh, dealing with data that you don't all have yet. Uh, so for instance, a good example of this is if you are loading stuff from the, from a server, lines of text, for instance, and you want to process each line of text as it comes in, Uh, You don't necessarily want to wait for all the lines of text to come. Um, Async sequences are perfect for this because you can say for line in await lines um, or something like that. I don't have anything in front of me, so I am uh, ad-libbing it. Uh, But uh, you can go ahead and have a for loop uh, in that structure, for instance, and that will go ahead and just as soon as a line comes in, um, it will be funneled through the API, and then your your for loop will run one iteration, and then it'll just wait for the next one at that point. So you still have very linear code, but it will go ahead and uh, it will go ahead and wait for more information to come as it comes. And if there's an error, it'll just stop and throw that error for you um, at that point in time. So it very much uh, is like uh, what we were talking about previously of how certain features of Swift kind of need to propagate to everywhere else. Um, so that way we're, they're usable everywhere else. Well, uh, await is one such keyword that is usable in one context, and now it's going to be usable in more and more as people kind of run into the limits of uh, the system. Um, more of these will surface. So this one was thankfully one that got brought in early enough, like before even the beta period started. Um, so it was like well uh, drawn out. Um, but I'm sure there are going to be more scenarios where uh, people are going to want certain use cases for async await that is just not going to be possible yet. Uh, so we'll see. Okay, so I don't 100% understand this one. So it's not quite like a dispatch group, right? Where it's waiting until, like, if you had this in a for loop, it wouldn't, um, you know, wait until the for loop is finished to run something or inside of the, the, um, I, I forget what it's called, but like the completion of the dispatch group, it seems more like almost, um, a combine, um, and now I'm forgetting the, like the observer and combine where it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a stream of data. Um, yeah. so you are going to, the data is not all there yet. It could be like, there's nothing preventing right. it from, um, doing it, but maybe it needs to be processed. Maybe there's like a chain of events that needs to happen, um, all in parallel on each item. Um, but your code, your for loop is going to be a serial, uh, implementation. Basically it's going to just work on oh. one at a time as the, uh, as the data gets transformed and is ready to be processed at that point in time. Um, okay. So I'm not sure how to do that transformation part. There's some built-in pieces like dot lines will give you an async sequence um, from a sequence of bytes uh, useful from the network, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there isn't much more that's like built-in. Uh, again, with the built-in functionality, that would be nice to have. 
Um, mm-hmm. Like, for instance, for whenever you're dealing with unserialized data, there's many different, uh, very common patterns. Like, you decode an integer, and then you use that integer to decode the next X bytes. Um, or you decode until you hit a certain uh, byte sequence. Um, right. A lot of those things are super common, and it would be nice to see um, API come up uh, that kind of implements a lot of these things, um, like from uh, that. So that way they're ready to be used. Uh, mm-hmm. But until then, what this for loop is going to do is just going to go through one entry, basically wait on the next entry to be ready, and within that completion handler, go to the next entry and so forth until there's no more entries and then it'll continue to the code that's after the for loop. So it's not doing gotcha. anything in a concurrent way. Uh, it's just allowing your code to be non-concurrent but concurrent friendly uh, if that makes mm. any sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and then I, I'll link to it in the show notes, but uh, David Smith who works on a lot of uh, these uh, low-level features in the Swift language, um, he went and tweeted uh, basically a conversion from uh, the new async await uh, syntax over to what it would have been with closures, so that way you can get an idea of how this transformation is taking place. Um, and that's an excellent way of uh, realizing how to go ahead and do this with promises and futures with Swift Neo, um, and it's it's a pain. <laughs> to kind of wrap your head in this kind of different mindset uh, where this one is going to immediately feel very natural um, and easy to follow. Awesome. Um, And that, again, leads into structured concurrency, which is the next kind of big flagpole uh, for the language. Uh, And this is basically allowing Swift as a language and as a compiler to make sure that you don't mess up when it comes to uh, dealing with um, concurrent tasks. Uh, so this is the replacement for GCD, essentially. Um, it go- has it gives Swift its own thread pool to go ahead and uh, process things. It will go ahead and be very intelligent in how it um, skips between one execution context and another. Um, basically, if I'm remembering this correctly from WWDC, it will go ahead and... Uh, take a snapshot of the stack um, before jumping, before awaiting, basically, and it will go ahead and save that in the heap. So that way, the stack does not grow um, as um, as a Swift needs to switch to these different execution contexts. And once it does switch to some other work that needs to be done, um, it will go ahead and move its stack from the heap back onto the stack, so that way it can go ahead and process it. So. Um, if none of that makes any sense to you, uh, I most definitely did a poor job explaining it. And there's uh, a great WWDC talk on this um, that I recommend you all to watch. Uh, but uh, this basically introduces a new type called a task. Um, and a task takes a completion handler, much like dispatch queue uh, can take an asynchronous block. Um, so I think this is kind of a part of it. Um, it's, it, I think it's a different proposal, but, um, the continuations for interfacing async tasks with synchronous code. And one thing that they bring up is you can have these check continuations to, for example, make sure that you call, uh, resume on a data task only once. Am I, am I correct in assuming those are kind of, um, somewhat connected? Yeah. So it's, it basically makes sure that you as a developer, 
don't mess up either by forgetting to write a line or by copy pasting some code and then it calling us the completion handler twice. Um, it right. prevents all those sorts of situations uh, because it takes away that ability from you and it gives you a brand new superpower of uh, having the compiler type check everything all the time, um, which uh, I guess this one would not be a candidate for loosey-goosey mode. <laughs> no, no. That you definitely want to be there. Um, mostly because it makes the code easier to reason um, with. Cool. That's awesome. Um, and a big part of this is going to be a new type that's coming to Swift language. Um, and it's a new reference type of all things, uh, an actor. Um, so have you heard of actors before they made their debut in Swift? No, <laughs> neither. No, I, I basically just live in Swift land anyway, and Objective-C kind of by extension, but so same, I've never heard of actors. I don't understand like the naming, uh, of how we got to actors, um, and soon we'll talk about sendable and that's an equally like, how did we pick these names? Yeah. Um, but apparently they, there is a prior art for having these terms and that's why we have, uh, these along with decks. Um, that's, that's how they come about. Uh, so actors are a new type. It's a reference type and you can go ahead and use them to have a thread safe, um, a thread safe data basically um that if you think about it it's kind of like implementing a class with an internal dispatch queue uh that kind of serializes mm -hmm. everything that comes in in terms of access and writing um but it does it in a more interesting way where you don't have to keep track of this queue um it's just going to never uh put a read or a write that accesses the same object uh, on two different threads at the same time. doesn't mean it won't jump from thread to thread. Uh, it just won't ever happen at the same time. Um, and this is a guarantee that's made by the language, uh, which is really neat. So it's, it's basically just a lock, more or less. Yeah, it's a lock on all the properties, but intelligently done where uh, if you don't need to grab a lock on like static data, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. it won't make one. Um, and okay, anytime cool. that you do need a lock, it will guarantee that you uh, acknowledge that and it will turn anything that um, may take a while as a result of that lock into a completion handler, um, which is a continuation point for the async await system. Cool. That's really cool. Um, I'm interested to see how much this is adopted. I you know, can't really think of a... a great use case off the top of my head but as soon as you know you're dealing with anything concurrent i'm sure there are plenty and plenty of situations um for this mm -hmm. um and they basically encourage you to use it liberally so if you have like mm. a chatting app uh and you have multiple like message threads just go ahead and use an actor for each thread um yeah, it will go sense. ahead and keep track of all that um so I guess anytime you think you might need some concurrency, instead of using a class, use an actor and see how it, how far it takes you. Um, yeah. And then you also get, which is, I think, even neater, uh, global actors, which I think there's only one of, the main actor. Uh, right. And this allows the system to basically make sure that you don't forget to call dispatchq.main uh, for anything for UI-related. Um, and it will enforce this. Basically, anytime you use structured concurrency anywhere, 
uh, and you happen to jump back to the main queue, it will go ahead and turn that into uh, a proper uh, await, basically, uh, and make sure that you don't do that incorrectly, which is uh, really, really neat. Um, and I don't know if it requires you to mark stuff with at uh, main actor uh, little by little, or if it kind of knows automatically. We'll see. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we'll see as more people use it. Uh, but it's it's definitely any any tool that basically prevents bugs from ever surfacing up. Um, I think is is a well a, definitely a w- big welcome addition. Yeah, especially having it be just a property wrapper like at main actor, super easy to do. It's at the start of the function. Uh, you can either know, oh yeah, this is something that's going to be you know. Uh, need to be run on the main thread or do it afterwards being like oh crap i am you know touching some ui element throw it up there after you write the function and you're golden i think that's all you need to do is just mm-hmm. put that at main actor so that's nice and and easy yeah and if you access anything that is not an actor or is not marked with at main actor or could be like problematic because it's a class a reference type and you weren't uh, especially um, like cognizant of that, uh, there's a new uh, protocol, and that is sendable. And sendable uh, basically marks any time you have a thread-safe type. That's basically it. Um, so if something is sendable, then you can use it as much as you want within the new uh, structure concurrency stuff. If something is not sendable, the compiler will yell at you anytime you try to attempt to use something that is not going to be safe. So, so a lot of things will be sendable, basically. Yep, and to mark something as sendable, you have to make it thread safe, basically. So it's not like you can just mark something and forget it. It Mm -hmm. actively is keeping an eye on it so that if you make any changes after the fact and you're not uh, necessarily aware with uh, how everything fits fits together, um, it's it's going to make sure that everything continues to work, which I think is the best part of Swift. Yes. Um, like you don't, you can't accidentally break something uh, from like negligence. You you can, but you can't introduce like one of hundreds of other bugs that everyone has definitely introduced in their uh, in their own experience, uh, even if you're not aware of it. Um, so Swift catches a lot of those issues, and that is super nice. Yeah, I think with a lot of these things, we're kind of going on the opposite way of loosey-goosey. We're going more and more strict, but it really is kind of for our own benefit, mm-hmm. you know, as much, uh, as, we hate sure it. <laughs> that, as much as we hate it in the moment, it's, you know, we're writing safer code because of it and having things like this main actor or at sendable, um, it's, it's a small price to pay, I think, for the, I'm sure, copious amount of bugs that we could cause ourselves if... Uh, you know, these things and even type safety weren't there. Um, I have never written JavaScript, but I do not know how people can feel safe uh, writing JavaScript. And, you know, that that just seems like a lot of mental overhead to make sure that you're using, you know, the correct type or whatever in the right place. So uh, I, I, for one, welcome our safety overlords. And I think that's kind of it as far as the... The changes go. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's all of them uh, for Swift 5.5. So check back with us next 
week sex code <laughs> 13.1 comes and we mm. have uh, swift 5.6.1 uh no uh but i do want to encourage like everyone to keep an eye on the forums keep an eye on the swift proposals because it really is fascinating watching this even, like come about um because a lot of these proposals don't start this way uh they start either very differently um or they have a whole bunch of like tasks that either get merged in or uh, things change as a result of it. Um, so uh, I'm really happy that Apple is kind of doing this out in the open um, and mm-hmm. they're encouraging the people that are working on it like full-time at Apple to like talk about it in the open um, because it's it's definitely been a great learning experience for myself in terms of API design and uh, going through and learning about all these sorts of things like actors. Like I would have never ever known about actors in my whole life because I didn't go take uh, computer science classes and I'm sure that's something that is brought up and like from uh, year one you're going to talk about all these different ideas that have come about over the years and decades of computer science and a lot of us that have just jumped into app development we never really seen all of that so yeah. uh, this is a good opportunity to see a lot of uh, these concepts be brought up see how things are fixed, um, see how things are made faster. Uh, for instance, there's a few pro- a few uh, proposals that just landed. Uh, one for, uh, I think, bringing all the Unicode specification into Swift instead of being a separate kind of import mm. from the C side, which will make uh, embedded Swift a lot more feasible because you don't have to include all of string parsing uh, right. that exists for your two megabyte microcontroller that doesn't have (laughs) space for that. Um, So that's like one such example. Um, So that just landed as a proposal. And another one that just landed is uh, string parsing, which basically if you've ever used regular expressions, uh, you've learned to hate them because they are inscrutable (laughs) and uh, horrendous to look at, especially as they get more and more (laughs) complex. Uh, So that is coming to Swift as a proper language feature. Yay. Mm, Um, But as... As like an addition to that, there's a brand new kind of API that's also coming called Patterns, uh, and this is basically Swift UI for strings, uh, if I can explain that correctly. So basically, you can go ahead and describe your regular expression using full words and nice indentations oh. and uh, explanations for like what's happening at every step. Uh, add modifiers like, hey, do you want one of these characters? Do you want between two or three do you want five six or seven whatever you want you can describe it as a basically a result builder um and add captures to that and then you can go ahead and parse strings um using this um this uh new and improved syntax over regular expressions uh so uh if you go and like read the comments for this proposal for instance you can go ahead and see that a lot of people are happy that regular expressions exist a lot of people hate regular expressions, but everyone <laughs> yeah. is more or less agreeing that this new pattern API is way better, um, and it's mm. good that regular expressions are kind of there, um, but it's also great that we can go ahead and move uh, further from that. So if you have regular expressions that you need to use, you can use them, um, but you aren't necessarily encouraged to write new regular expressions because there's something better. Um I almost wish that if you were to debug a regular expression, it might print out like pattern code uh, instead, um, cool. which would be great for like, here's a regular expression. I'm going to 
print this in the debugger and I'm going to copy that code and paste Throw it, it into in. mine. Um, <laughs> and then you can make tweaks to it because now you understand what's going on. Um, right. So uh, we'll That's leave cool. a link to that one in the show notes as well. Yeah, for sure. That's I, I've i never really done a bunch of string parsing and I've heard from others that know other languages that strings or sorry, Swift's string parsing is, I think, somewhat lacking. So that's exciting to to hear. Good Definitely. stuff. I mean, it, that's the thing. I'm I'm sure that they've got so many engineers at Apple working on Swift and trying to improve it and everything. But um, by them making it open source, you have so many more people that are using it on the daily for different use cases and who all you know have probably similarly good ideas for how to improve the language. If, you know, they're running into an issue, it's likely that someone else will. So um, I agree that it's very cool that Apple has, uh, you know, I think for the most part open sourced it. Um, you know, like we like we talked about, a lot of Swift UI's um, property wrappers and stuff are, are closed source and stuff. But I think that's more the exception than the rule. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people were definitely mad when such guy dropped, and I was like, I remember oh, that. there's all this extra stuff in the language that no one asked for our opinion on. Um, and, like, yeah, it's Apple's thing. They're going to go ahead and add stuff to it whenever they want based on what they need for the language to be able to do. Um, yeah. Like, we can't do anything about that. But you can influence how, like, function builders get turned yeah. into result builders. Um, you can influence that whole process. Um, if you have good ideas, if you have bad ideas, you can't influence anything, <laughs> but you can, yeah. you can definitely, uh, you can definitely have a say, um, and have your opinion be heard, which is really nice. So for instance, with async await, uh, that was going to be just brand new, uh, only to like modern versions of iOS and macOS rather than backported. Um, but because a bunch of people said, Hey, like, no one's going to use this for years if you don't backport yeah. it. Uh, yep. Then Apple kind of prioritized that um, and made it happen from an engineering point of view. It's non-trivial to backport core features to the runtime um, all the way. Because a lot of Swift editions are not runtime features. They are compiler features. Uh, but this one really is one that requires a lot of runtime support. And you can't just staple on runtime support for back versions of uh, the language. So... Uh, They are slowly making progress there. It's not set in stone yet that it will happen, um, but there is a chance and there has been progress that has been merged in um, and there continues to be uh, for getting um, for getting like async await uh, available to older versions of iOS. So uh, we have to either be patient or contribute to it as well uh, if you know what you're doing. Yeah, just be a part of this discussion where you can. That's cool. I I don't think I would ever submit a proposal. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't know. I I've never had an idea. I, that it's just way beyond me. But I think it's cool that it's on GitHub and you can go on there and and you know comment and if you have any input, maybe it's a, a proposal that's already there. You can still be a part of the discussion on where it goes. So mm-hmm. that's that's cool. And even if if like your comment has already been said three times, it helps to say it a fourth time because that is basically a vote for that camp, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So don't be shy, even if it's saying, I agree, like, doing it in this way, uh, and you have nothing else to add, that's totally fine. Uh, Don't attack people. Like, everyone is kind of working on on best intentions um, for many of these things. So, like, you can't make anything happen, uh, but you can influence it uh, for like the direction that you do want it to go in 
and if you have a good argument to be made, everyone's going to listen whether they never they necessarily agree with your initial point or not. So this week's episode of Code Completion is once again brought to you by Super Easy Timer. Super Easy Timer is a quick and easy to use timer app for your Mac. It's completely text-based, so you can type in English what you want, 20 minutes or 5 p.m., hit enter, and instantly start that timer. The timer understands English text to create, update, and start a new timer. You can quickly change an active countdown, even while it's still counting down. There are simple keyboard shortcuts to reset or pause, no menus, no sliders, just use English to control your timer. We want to thank Super Easy Timer for sponsoring our show. Search for Super Easy Timer on the Mac App Store today to give it a try. So now that we've completed our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Spencer? Yes. So last week we had an async await question for you all. Um, And now that we've talked about it, we have a winner. So that's exciting. Uh, The question is, how would you transform the networking code shown to use the new async await, await pattern. And Edgars, who wrote it all out, uh, print preparing in a string, then start a new Swift 5.5 task block, like we talked about uh, briefly, uh, where we declare a tuple with underscore for the first parameter and let, and let response for the second, uh, then set that tuple to be equal to try await URL session dot shared dot data for HTTP request, uh, which will pr- put the current execution context on hold uh, until it gets a response or it throws an error. Uh, following up with a print that we've received the response. Um, after the task block, print sent request, which will actually get called before the task completes. Um, so, and, and that works just awesome. Um, this week we have an explorative UI, UI kit question for you. So if you're listening to the podcast, you can check the podcast or the show notes to follow along as always. Um, how can you use UI view controllers update view constraints to quickly swap between very different view layouts? So thank you, Spencer. So if you can complete the code, tweet your answers to us with hashtag complete the code, all one word. Uh, the first to get it right will get a shout out on the following week's show. So as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodeCompletion so you can know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you want for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's really your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Uh, Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buñol. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. For everyone that is not in our Slack, which is the entire world except for six people, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Dimitri, as he was preparing today's episode, uh, and he was getting that um, that, um, India App Spotlight ready, uh, for the SMS, you know, text filtering and everything, he got smart a filter. the smart filter. Um, he got a um, you know fake Wells Fargo suspicious activity text. So that was that was very timely and relevant. Um, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so do you know what I did? I downloaded Smart Filter and I uh, tipped away because I don't want those anymore. <laughs> I'm so sick yeah. of spam lately. Uh, so talk about relevant. Yeah. 
I haven't got a ton of text ones, but I just I get a ton of just spam email. I mean, it's ridiculous. Just on the daily, how many? And you know, they all go into your spam folder, and it's like you won X amount of Bitcoin or. Oh, you know, my whatever. spam filter has given up. I'm at sixty three thousand <laughs> three hundred and eighteen emails in my inbox. I don't. You're more than halfway there, man. I, I know. I need to get to hundred k just to see if the little red bubble will keep up with me. Um, but like, I I read it every morning, but I don't. I can't go through and like mark a spam, mark a spam, archive, no, archive, yeah. mark a spam. It just takes too long. There's hundreds a day. Like, I'm never yep. gonna get through it. So I just gotten to the point where I will read through it. When I need to read through it again, I'll go down to the point where I see, oh, I've read an email. Let me continue from there. That's basically all I can do at this point uh, to keep up with it. It's really sad. Oh, no. This is my cable. Please don't eat my cable. Ow. Cat eating my (laughs) headphone cable. (laughs) I think think we talked about, well, you mentioned this before, but you, at the very least in the past, probably like earlier like first three or four years of of iOS, mm-hmm. you like have experienced jailbreaking uh, a device, right? Yes, I've also experienced being unable to update an app because the computer that was on the local network had jailbreak stuff on it, and that prevented the app from activating oh. the iPhone from activating a normal like through a normal process and sweating bullets like nothing is working. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know that. So yeah, that's crazy. Um, because um, that's how I, old jailbreaks would work. You had to spoof the activation server that Apple's connected oh, to. Interesting. Um, so I remember doing it, I think it was probably like with my second generation iPod Touch um, before I had an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember there was one tweak you could download that would let you just modify like the, the bubbles, like the, the number... Mm-hmm. you know whatever notification bubbles and stuff and you could put whatever in there i don't know if i ever tried like to make a super long bubble to see how how large the number could get but i'm well you could probably just write an app to see just for fun yeah just you know, how, how large you could do it but yeah i, I kinda... think i think there is a limit at 10 at 100k like it's 999 oh is thing. it 99 comma 999 plus or whatever yeah. Well, if there's room for a plus, you can put the one. Yeah, that's true. Good point. That's one thing I always hate whenever there's like truncated text. Is like if there's room for the dot dot dot, you had room <laughs> for the one character that you hid with the dot dot dot. Like, yeah, good point. So it's like those little things in UI design where you have like a show more button to show one line. It's like yeah, come on, come on. You could have checked that. Just like checking plurals and putting s's. Uh, things yeah. like that. Like, yes, it takes extra work, but it, it's worth it. In the it's end. it's People literally an it. if statement. Yeah, People I appreciate it. I should say. I can't remember what app I was looking at the other day, but it was like a very well known app, and it didn't do that. And it just would always say it, it would have a plural, and it would never check if it was one. It was like, come on, guys. The like, worst laziness is when they put the S in parentheses. It's like yes, you know, like they, they couldn't be bothered <laughs> to write an if else statement. Come on, man. Or ternary operator or something, yeah. I mean, UIKit has, like, such nice stuff for, like, string dicks now, where you can go ahead and localize per language. Oh, if it's zero, if it's one, if it's two, if it's many. Like, for every yeah. different language, you can put all the different rules, and it'll just take care of it. It's super nice. Um, but it's kind of complicated to set up, and the tooling needs better support. Um, mm. But alas. Alas, indeed. 
localization's crazy. I mean, we do that at work and stuff, and it's just like lots of NS localized strings everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, code no longer looks like the app anymore, which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it happens. Yeah. At a certain point, the project grows to a point where you need to support multiple languages properly. And yeah. if you don't, then yeah, you don't get those customers. Cool. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if I'd recommend it for indie projects, though. Like, mm-hmm. unless you you natively speak those languages, it's probably not going to be worth it for you to, like, localize out of the gate unless you already have a popular product. Mm-hmm. Um, so, unfortunately, do keep that in mind, like, when you are writing apps. Yeah, uh, you could do something like, I th- uh, I can't remember if it's with Hungry or not Fub, but you guys are, have, like, the localization files just on a GitHub repo, isn't that right? Yeah, uh, and, so and not like, a single person has shown interest in suggesting that things should be different here or there. Uh, yeah. So, again, but I don't know if it's worth it for that. Um, if it but, got popular enough, mm-hmm. you know, someone would surely contribute to, you know, German or whatever language you don't have. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's a, kind of a nice middle ground there is maybe, like you said, setting it up to to get to that point is maybe more work than it's worth, though. I don't know. I've never had to kind of set up that that architecture for the localization itself. Yeah. So if you want to see localizations happen for Nafa, go download Nafa and support <laughs> it. Uh, and then go go and ma- help make it popular. That way someone will feel the need to translate an entire cookbook's worth of text into another language. Yeah. Uh, but at the very least, no one can complain. <laughs> 